0: Morning, heart with loving heart united. You know that we didn't coordinate this. That's one of my favorite hymns. And way ba- you did know that. Way back in the Middle Ages, when I was ordained, uh, I had them sing that song at my ordination ceremony. Do you know any humble people? Have you ever met a humble person? In my experience, they're few and far between. I've, I've met a few, but very few. And they're great find. If you, if you find a, a friend or a person who's truly humble, they don't have to speak first, they don't have to push first into line, they can listen to others, and when they're listening to you, it, it seems like, as far as they're concerned, your problems are every bit as important as their own problems. They just simply aren't about themselves all the time. All the, They aren't always demanding their rights, they don't seem to work that way, or their privileges. Um don't seem to have this craving for recognition or, or success. They're, they're just humble that way, aren't full of expectations, no, no sense of entitlement. Well, all I can hope is that some of it wears off on me someday. I can try to emulate them, but it's just, I am not a humble soul by nature. Everything I just listed is a, is a good conduct, I'm afraid I'm, I'm like the foil, I'm the, the opposite in some ways. Now to get a hold on this idea of what humility is, let's, I mean, to understand it biblically, so we'll, let's, what's the opposite of humility? So we'll put humility here and its opposite there. Uh, and we'll do that by looking at the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins, if you're not familiar with them, is a very traditional way of looking at, at sin in the Christian church as a Christian view. And at the very top of the list of the seven deadly sins is the sin of pride. Uh, you might say that pride is the, you know, humility's here. Pride is it's the opposite. It's, it's everything, they're, everything the other is not. Now, each of the seven deadly sins has a, a kind of a a solution in a virtue. And you have the sin, and then you've got the virtue. So if pride is the problem, I think I switched hands here, if pride is the problem, humility is the answer. It's the key to unlock the stranglehold that pride can put you in. That's one way of looking at it. And pride is at the top of the list of sins because most of our other sins feed upon it or, or, or it spring from it, you might say. It's the most difficult sin of all to overcome. And humility is our main weapon. But humility doesn't come automatically and easily to much of any of us. Pride will take us away from God, and humility will lead us to God. And so then it's not surprising that the Bible teaches a Christian to be humble and to work on this thing called humility. But that raises a question right away, which is like, how do you do that? <laughs> if it's not a natural endowment, how do you acquire it? Uh, and the short answer to, my, to that question, if, if I can do this, is that, that you work on it or you, you approach it by changing your thinking, correcting your thinking, and committing yourself to a new way of looking at things. You now, at first, Past that sounds like, well, that's a pretty easy first step. I can handle that. I think, no, that first step is really, really difficult. That's the hardest part of it. It starts with the idea of a, a realistic appraisal of who we are and where we stand, the truth about ourselves. That's not easy. That's not easy to face. Well, you know, the old thing counselors always say, right? You know, admitting you have a problem is the first step to getting better. So we'll see how this goes. because We are not humble, most of us. Let I me mean, just think about this just socially on, on the earthly plane here. We're experts anytime we give our opinion, aren't we? Well, if you don't believe me, just look at Facebook. Uh, the newest game on my Facebook anyway is, to, it's like a game of the king. Who can call the other person stupid first? As if if you got to the top of the hill first, that that must surely establish your claim. The other person's the idiot. (laughs) If it only worked that way, right? You just have to be quick on the draw. Well, we might concede. I mean, the average person probably concedes that somebody knows something they don't know. Like, you know, how to put the roof on your house or how to uh, fill a cavity or, you know, pull out your appendix or fix your car. I mean, they might know things you don't know, but face it, you know, you have better common sense. You, you, you have better judgment than they have. Uh, uh, you have the gift of insight. Well, you see how that always means that you will put yourself in first place <laughs> because no matter what they know, you know more about what they know than, than what they, or how to use it or, or how it is applied. You know this better than they know. Well, we're not humble, and I think, you know, as I said, look at Facebook. You'll see that we speak first and we speak harshly. We get in line first and we're pushy. We reason that we have the right to be angry or even violent when somebody crosses us. And when we're, in, when we're insulted, we have the right to kind of retaliate. Those aren't the acts of humble people. Now, one of the things that, that makes this pride and humility dynamic so thorny, and really ought to be terrifying to us, is that if you force yourself to act humble when you're not, in other words, you're artificially humble, then you use that as just more evidence of your own superiority, don't you? What a wonderful person I am. You know, please, I'm magnificent, uh, generous, forgiving, kind. I serve people. I won't give you an autograph. I'm far too humble for that. Uh, But you see, this is why pride becomes so difficult for people because... uh, uh, as you do good things, then it, pride seizes hold of those good things and makes you prouder and prouder of yourself. So it seems like there's no solution to this pride-humility dilemma if it's just a question of, um, kind of forcing yourself to act humble, if you're not humble. Artificial humil- humility is actually a real danger to you for that reason. You can see how pride could cause great damage in the world, but think about what does it do to us spiritually? As I said, pride leads you away from God and humility will lead you to Him. Why is pride such a spiritual enemy? Why did the church so long ago and for so many centuries say, pride's at the top of the list of all the sins? Why is it so grave? Why, is it, why does it kill us? When we think about it, pride is why we ate that fruit. And why we continue to nibble at that fruit, by the way. I mean, there's lots of something that happens in long ago, ancient, cloudy history. I mean, that's something humans do. It's why we ignore God, it's why we disregard biblical teaching. You all know the Proverbs, right? Pride goes before destruction, the Proverbs says. Proverbs also says, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with but with the humble is wisdom. I want to check in on what we might call a dinner party with Jesus. Uh, Stories told in Luke chapter 14, and uh, we'll call it a dinner party, but we'll have to tweak that a little bit as we get into it. But uh, I don't think the host could see it coming at this big event, but pride becomes the lesson for the day. And I'll be breaking this passage up from Luke 14 into three chunks. That's a technical theological term for, for parsing Bible verses to, to make it kind of fit together for us. But uh, we'll see how the teaching on humility unfolds here in Luke 14. Now what happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent and he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Now, I'd like you to focus in that section of chapter 14 on the phrase, they could not answer him. Because they couldn't answer him, you might say, the teaching erupts or the teaching follows. Now, by way of just background, this is a Sabbath meal that he's been invited to. And uh, a modern Orthodox observant Jew wouldn't... um, they have the idea of you don't light a fire on the Sabbath, so you don't cook things on the Sabbath. You have a bunch of dishes you can fix ahead of time uh, that, that don't involve cooking. If you ever heard of cholent? If you haven't, you should try it sometime. It's good. Uh, uh, it's one of these dishes that can be, you know, kind of kept over and then eaten on the, on the Sabbath. Um, I don't know how this was practiced in Jesus' day exactly, but I do know and have read, read from substantial sources that a Sabbath dinner was a big deal. It was, not a, uh, uh, it was meant to be a celebration. It was not meant for austerity or any kind of, you might say, Mennonite uh, simplicity in this meal at all. It was the time to show off and bring out the good stuff. And uh, Sabbath was regarded as a weekly holiday, not a, a drag to sit around and just not do anything. And a guest to one of the, the big Sabbath meals where the prestigious went, this would be considered something of an honor to go. And uh, that's because this hip thing that's recording me is on my hip, and I keep hitting it with my elbow. That's If I could time it just perfectly with my points, it would really be interesting. But it would be sort of like the, the flop, though, like the... The joke that crashes to the ground or something, it wouldn't work. Anyway, the, back to the subject at hand here. Uh, there's a person also invited to the, the Sabbath meal who has uh, is the victim of a disease, um, and the New King James Bible called it dropsy. We kind of know what dropsy is—an old-fashioned term, even in English at this point. Uh, it's very hard to discern what the diseases are um, coming from, from you know. two two millennia ago Uh, it's it's a water retention problem one way or the other and it can have disfiguring effects as your body holds on to its water and so your face drops the Greek word has this idea of kind of a disfigurement that comes from it probably because your face gets all puffy and weird but uh, in modern terms in terms of medicine it it could be connected to the idea of congestive heart failure and so it's it's fatal it might either start in, in congestive heart failure or end up there so it's a water retention issue Well, should Jesus heal this poor victim of disease on the Sabbath? And he does. And I wonder what the host and guests are thinking. The passage says they were watching him closely to see what he would do. And many assume, actually, that there was a sinister intent in the invitation to Jesus to this meal. Uh, In other words, there was a hidden agenda there. And maybe they were going to try to deliberately get Jesus into trouble once he got there. I don't know that the, the man with dropsy, the man who's diseased here, wasn't actually part of a setup. It's possible. It's not, I don't think, paranoid thinking. <laughs> it's a, a good way of looking at the, the scriptures here. Uh, one way or the other, though, Jesus appears, at least the way the story's told, to have dispensed with all social niceties, with all sort of, I'll play along with the game here, with what you're trying to do with your secret agenda. And he very openly and bluntly, uh, you know, at this, this meal, challenges the guests and heals the man. Now, what's that got to do with humility? You think, well, did I start preaching this from the wrong end of the passage here? <laughs> what's it got to do with the subject at hand? Well, Jesus goes on to tell them this parable, and I assume after the healing kind of, you know, they didn't, eat with, they didn't eat with forks or things back then. They lay around a triclinium, you know, a three-sided table. But it, So everybody drops their food and is... They're leaning in to hear what Jesus has to say. All eyes are on him. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited... Go and sit down in the lowest place. And when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, just as I had you focus on that phrase, they could not answer him. I want you to focus on this phrase, friend, go up higher. Now, why this parable? Why now? What does it have to do with the healing that just took place? In other words, what do what either of them have to do with, with humility, our topic at hand? Well, I don't think it would be good Bible interpretation to say, well, the first episode is about compassion for humans versus a legalistic understanding of the Sabbath. Uh, but now, since Jesus has got the mic, he's just going to zing him with another parable that has nothing to do with anything that's related to what just, what just happened. No, these things are carefully connected in the gospel of Luke, and you might ask, why? Well, in the parable, we've switched to a wedding feast, you you know, when you're, you know, in the the teaching, you're switched to a a wedding feast. So I think we're talking then about the kingdom of God, and when you're talking about the wedding feast of the kingdom of God, God is the host, and who does God focus on here, Um, on the rich guests? The ones who crowded to the best places, those who, for whatever reason, or does he look at for those or whatever reason, took the lowest places. Either they were forced to or they just felt that was their place. And Who would be in the lowest places? Could that include those who carry the, the burdens of, say, chronic disease and health problems and maybe even disfigurement? There are so many things that will break a human being or cripple a life. And God cares greatly about those who are past the point of even being able to fake it. They can't put up a facade. Their situation is one of humility, and they can't pretend it's otherwise. But those who came to establish their own status at a social event and to take their supposed rightful place in a pecking order at the party, they were about to be humiliated. Well, this diseased individual, this broken individual, gets not just the attention, but healing. Truly, his life is restored to him. I'd say it's wrong not to connect the episodes in this chapter. It would be just as wrong to assume that Jesus is giving social etiquette advice here, let alone giving the, the guests a strategy for getting ahead by scamming the humble system. In other words, you know, I'll pretend I'm humble for a while, so I'll I'll get moved up and then I'll really be glorious. (laughs) That's not Jesus. That's not the point of the parable here. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is something very deep in that message. God is the one who can elevate you. God is the one who can lower you. Jesus begins to elaborate further then in verse 12. But once again, I don't think he's giving just social advice. You know, there were Proverbs, incidentally, that the Jews would have all known, especially the, the Pharisees and scribes who were present, uh, that would have given this kind of advice about uh, taking a lower place than, than um, you might want to as, as a means of social behavior. Uh, they would have known all that. But Jesus is obviously bringing something much bigger into play. He's after more. The guests are prodded to think differently about the kingdom of God, what it takes to get there, and what it means to be there, and how to think about how God works in this world. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner party or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, once again, how does this work? Jesus has just reordered the world. He has shuffled the deck. He's put something else at the front of it. He has put his people then as agents to do what God himself does, which is to give a kind of priority or understanding to the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, the hurting, the broken. They are welcome, and they are asked to move up to a lower place at the wedding feast. Not because they are better, because they're not necessarily, but because in their humility they have made themselves available they have made themselves open to it. Well, if a good Sabbath meal, party, lunch, whatever it is, uh, hasn't already gotten weird, Jesus keeps pushing the point. So somebody tries to kind of calm the, the weirdness down. You know, there's always that person. You know, it's, it's everybody's sitting around feeling kind of uncomfortable and somebody comes up with a quip, you know, or a, in this case, it's a pious zinger. Now one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, and he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Indeed, that's the right response. but It poses a great question. Who will eat bread in the kingdom of God? So Jesus continues. He said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, "Um, I, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Assuming it's just been done, the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there's still room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges, compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Once again, it would be correct to say that God, the Father, our Father, is the host for this meal. And I think it's safe to assume that the invitations didn't take anybody by surprise. I mean, you can... You did get called to to events sometimes like that, but you were invited and you knew what was, was coming up. And so I think it's safe to assume that the excuses being offered by those who don't want to come to this great supper aren't just excuses. They are completely bogus. They are ridiculous. They are laughable. Bought a piece of land and need to go see it now? Well, go tomorrow. Or plan ahead. Go yesterday. Bought some oxen? You need to try them out now? Really? Today? You knew the invitation was coming. You just got married, and now you can't come? Well, how does that work? You of all people should know the pressures, of, p- pressures and pleasures of planning a big event and having people fill the house. Uh, maybe some of these same guests were at your wedding. Uh, uh, this is all in your recent memory. You of all people should, should uh, jump in with both, both feet, so to speak. All these people were simply about themselves, Their their activities, their life, those things that were important to them uh, took complete priority. Their excuses are arrogant. There is no humility evident at all, and they missed the feast. If you want to eat bread in the kingdom of God, or maybe we should put it as a question to us, do you really want to eat bread in the kingdom of God, or do you? Is new land, your new oxen, your new wife, much more important? But who gets to go to the supper? (laughs) The poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame, even after clearing the streets of those persons, there's still room. So enough of this idea of a crabby God who is trying to keep people out of his kingdom and wants just this little uh, prestigious elite who can come in and sit in the high seats. There's a lot of room here. Go out further into the highways. There's plenty of feasting and celebration here. Compel them to come in. That word compel can, can run you into trouble there. I mean, it can mean to kind of muscle people in, force them, but uh, it can also mean to just simply encourage and treat, really urge, come in here. We've got a feast going on. We've got a celebration for you. We know God does not compel us into his kingdom by force We can learn that he's here through the Holy Spirit, always out bidding people to come in. There's plenty of room here in his kingdom at his supper. He wants people there. He's not trying to hold people out. Our situation, all of us sitting here, or me standing here, is like the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, like the man who was healed of dropsy. In other words... Our situation in reality is that we are humble. I mean, that's looking at us truthfully. Humility is first just realizing uh, that's our situation. To lack humility is to offer lame and ridiculous excuses and miss God's feast. When we practice humility towards others, sincerely, not artificially, we live our lives in humility, we are putting the world right. We're changing the world just as Jesus said that that happened in these feasts. We are reorganizing everything about the universe in light of who we really are and where we really stand with God. Well, Peter tells us, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. James tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. Paul tells us, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, many translations say in humility, let each esteem others better than himself. So let me conclude quickly. No one suggests in the scriptures, none of the writers, that you practice an artificial humility. You begin being humble by seeing the world right. It begins with a change in our thinking and knowing who we are in relationship to, to God. We want to be guests at these great supper feasts. Humility is how you receive the invitation and it all begins with your thinking. And then a commitment to practice humility, to become a humble person. This is nothing short of living and practicing the gospel of Christ. I'll close you quickly with a verse from Micah. I think could we end the sermon on it? And could you could we offer it as something of a prayer? Join me. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God?